Welcome to Live from Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 39 on disinformation with Lee McIntyre. The prisoners in Plato's cave are watching shadows on a wall that are projected by puppeteers that carry statues in front of a fire. You might say the puppeteers are spreading disinformation to such an extent that it becomes not just science denial, but reality denial. Today we discuss Lee McIntyre's latest book on disinformation, how to fight for truth and protect democracy. In this book Lee writes, the goal of this information is not merely to get people to believe any particular false claim, but to so demoralize them with the tsunami of falsehoods that they begin to give up on the idea that truth can be known at all outside of a political context. Lee McIntyre is a philosopher and a scholar of science denial. He is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University and a recent lecturer in ethics at Harvard Extension School. In episode 31, we discussed this book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. And today we get more into his recent book. And the main reason why I wanted to discuss disinformation with Lee is because I believe that the impact of climate science disinformation on our democracy is grossly underestimated. I imagine many people listening to this live in the same cave, the same bubble as I do, where we have the impression that climate denial is something of the past that most people now recognize the urgency of action in the climate crisis. Well, I just don't think that's the case. Based on my conversations with climate skeptics, what I see on social media and other research. Anyway, if you want to know more about this, I linked an article I wrote on the permanent disinformation campaign and the elections. It's in Dutch and I provided an English translation. So I hope journalists and politicians start to pay more attention to climate disinformation because the merchants of doubt have been very successful so far. Welcome back in Plato's Cave. <laughs> Thank you very much. Last time we discussed already a little bit your book. I think you finished it and it was just about to come out on disinformation. Oh, so that's my new book. Um, we... Did we, did we already talk about that one once? We discussed how to talk to a science denier, but that you were also telling me then you were writing on, on this information. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I tipped my hand and told you a little bit about the new book before the book was out. I, yeah, I hope exactly. I left something to talk about today then. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading it in the train. I mean, rereading it. And because I'm finishing up a book myself, my wife said, you have to write a book like this because it's small. You can take it with you. It's easy to read. And I think that's also your intention, right? That this is not something that sits in the bookcase, but people take it with yeah. them on the train. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, I, I've written a, a lot of books before this, none so small and compact and, you know, urgent. Um, and so, yeah, I don't want this to be a trophy. I want this to be used. I mean, I want people to highlight it and dog ear the pages and give it to a friend because... I mean, I wrote it kind of as a manifesto, really, because I think that democracy is under threat from disinformation, and there's just about enough time to do something about it. We should have started, you know, long before this. But I feel like, you know, I wanted to put something in the hands of people who maybe thought, well, there's nothing to be done, but there is something to be done. 
Yeah, it's really action oriented, right? And uh, yeah. you end with a, with a list that just goes on with you can do this and you can do this and you can do this because I guess, mm-hmm. yeah, one of the main threats is that we start to feel powerless. That's right. I mean, one of the one of the goals of disinformation is to make you feel powerless. Yeah. It's to it's not just to get you to believe a falsehood. It's to get you to just give up on the idea that you can know the truth or that, you know, even if somebody's sharing something that you know to be false, just to give up on the idea that you can do anything about it. And so I wrote this book to try to convince people that there is something that you can do about it. And by the way, I mean, I'll give it away. The primary thing you can do is to realize that we're already in a disinformation war. The I, I make, a, as you know, I make a big distinction at the beginning of the book between misinformation and disinformation. And the way that the media tends to report is on misinformation, which makes it sound like it's a natural disaster where there's nothing we can do. You know, it just, it's beyond our control. But if it's disinformation, which is intentional, lying, you know, shared on purpose, you know, for a purpose, then there is something that we can do about it. So that's my, um, that was my motivation. And that's also the main message that I want to get out to my readers. There is something that you can do about this crisis that we're in. Just to start with uh, the title on disinformation, I'm mostly interested in climate disinformation. Having a lot of conversations with yeah climate skeptics, though yeah mm-hmm. still mostly online, but also face to face. And sometimes when I use the term disinformation, people tell me not not the not the climate skeptics, but other people say, well, you shouldn't use that word because it's polarizing. But I mean, you didn't call your book on misinformation. I think you, yeah, yeah, you think it's very important that actually we do use that word. It, it it is because, I mean, of course, it's in somebody's, it's in a disinformer's best interest to hide the fact that what they're spreading is disinformation. They want you to believe it's truth, but euphemisms aren't helping anyone. And you know, uh, I mean, I faced this before. Science deniers don't want to be called deniers. They want to be called skeptics. Um, too bad if they are deniers, you know, if if there's sufficient evidence and they are ignoring it, you know, in a hostile way and, and sharing, uh, you know, their their thoughts widely to uh, convince other people, then, you know, they they really are deniers. I mean, that that's not the definition of science denial i've given a a, a better definition in my book but i i mean i moved on from just talking about science denial to now being concerned with reality denial because it's not just science that's under threat it's you know our the very idea that facts can convince us of what's true not just about climate or not just about vaccines but about the outcome of an election about who was really behind the storming of the Capitol in on January 6th. I mean, these are matters that should not be in dispute because they're they're factual, empirical matters. And I ask myself, why are they in dispute? And they're in dispute because someone wants them to be. This was the catalyst for writing the new book. Denial is created by disinformation. 
Denial is not an accident. Science deniers are created uh, on purpose by people who want them to believe a falsehood. And so, of course, they'll complain to you. Don't use the word denial. Don't use the word disinformation. Yeah. But you have to, because part of the way to fight back is to understand what you're up against. You know, as I often say, you can't win an information war without knowing you're in one. And it, there's there's no time really to use euphemisms. The other thing going on is you understand, because I'm sure you've read the other books, that the title on disinformation, I'm shamelessly ripping off two other wonderful books on bullshit and on tyranny. So now my book is the same exact size. And it's a manifesto and it's called On Disinformation. So, I mean, those books were in some ways my inspiration, you know, my motivation that I could do something like this. I I admire both of those books. Well, the word bullshit, that's a, that's a pretty strong word. And the word tyranny, that's a pretty strong word. So I don't make I don't make any apologies for using the word disinformation because that's what it is. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's um it's not so much I mean, of course, I can understand if you tell someone, oh, you're spreading this information or your science denier, they get offended. But it's also the people who generally do believe in science and who do see there's there's a problem with, for instance, climate change that say, okay, uh, I understand. But if you call it disinformation, then you're polarizing mm -hmm. and then you lose kind of lose yeah. your chance to that. And for me, I yeah it's uh, a <laughs> i'm i'm tempted to talk about martial arts again like how do you well, fight without needlessly like uh if, if you fight you can there's also a chance that you invite more conflict yeah redirect the energy right but but look here's i think an important distinction to make the disinformers are the ones who are creating the lies for their own purposes, because they're benefiting by them. But they're counting on the other people to believe it, who are their victims. So they're not disinformers, technically speaking. So some of the pushback that you're getting is from people who have been victimized by disinformation about climate change. And they maybe believe what the liars are saying. And they say, how dare you call me a denier? How dare you call me a disinformer? Because, you know, I actually believe this and I actually think there's a debate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it's important. I mean, one thing that I recommend in my earlier book, as you know, is I think it's important to use the word science denial. But if you're trying to convince a science denier, don't call them a denier to their face. That's not, you know, going to help convince them. Yeah. But the problem that we're dealing with is a problem of denial. Um, nobody likes to admit that they're duped. But most science deniers are duped. There, you know, there are strong special interests behind trying to convince us that climate change is not real, or that there are po there's poison in the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the people who are primarily responsible for this. But the the people who are victimized by the disinformation are spreading it. And, you know, we have to find a way to deal with them. So, you know, I mean, maybe you're right head on. 
you know, accusing them of something which they don't think that they've done, it isn't maybe going to work. No. But, you know, it depends on who your audience is. Are you trying to convince them or are you trying to convince, you know, the larger po population, you know, of, of what's going on? So one thing I try to do when, especially when talking online, is to be clear for myself about what my goal is. Mm -hmm. And I've been actually experimenting on LinkedIn. Mm. Also because on LinkedIn, people have to use their real name and usually you have a job title. Oh, okay. But there, you're not very active on LinkedIn, I think, right? I, I, I no, I, no. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a LinkedIn account, but yeah. it's very, very difficult to use, in my opinion. And um, I, I would just, uh, you know, rather communicate with people by email, or you know, uh, it, through messages on uh, Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, well, that's so. Uh, this is uh, this is also. One of the reasons I asked, okay, can we please talk about your new book? Because we have an election coming up in November and the cabinet fell, um, I think that was in July or something like that, just before the summer. And right away, I saw such a rise in disinformation uh, on LinkedIn, which is where usually a professional network. So my, na my real name is there. They, they verify your company email and everything like that. And even then I started to see under all the posts about climate change, uh, yeah, the uh, all the climate disinformation that I recognized from people posting on their real names. And I think that in the Netherlands, maybe there's something happening behind the screens, but for sure there's nothing happening in front of the screens to fight climate disinformation. And we're at now at the point where there are some parties like <laughs> I saw the Republican debate where they asked, do you believe yeah. climate change is real? And they all, none of them raised their hands, right? Yeah. So there are some parties like that in the Netherlands as well. And um, yeah, this, I don't, I'm sometimes also lost for words because I feel like I was so happy when I read your book. You, you actively say, yeah, we need to fight for democracy. And it's it's very serious. Yeah. That's why coming back to what I said before, if the moment you use the word disinformation, the reaction is often, oh, you shouldn't use it. Uh, it's polarizing. But I think, well, actually, there is a lot at stake now uh, because you just have to convince voters a little bit. Uh, they just need to doubt a little bit that climate change is real and CO2 is the main cause and, and that therefore we should put a lot of effort in reducing CO2 emissions because yeah. if they doubt a little bit, it's enough already, right? We're a long, long, long way down the road to where we should have done something a long time ago about climate change. I don't think we can afford to try to spare people's feelings anymore. No. The evidence is overwhelming the people who are resisting are either people with something to gain through their fossil fuel interests or people who are duped by those people and it's hard to convince someone that they've been duped that's probably even harder than to convince them to change their beliefs because nobody wants to feel like they're a fool. Nobody wants to feel like somebody else made them believe something. Uh, Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. 
So, you know, it's, I think there's something to this idea that, you know, there, there are a lot of people now that are out there saying, um, well, th this is an actual scientific debate about climate, isn't it? I mean, I can name some scientists who agree with me, you know, if, yeah. if I'm a denier, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, they, they try to make it look like it's a respectable scientific disagreement, but it's not. And so, you know, you're when they accuse you of polarizing, what's the harm? They're already polarized. They're saying, leave me alone. Let me let me continue to amplify this falsehood and stop, you know, exposing me. No, they need to be exposed for what they're doing. What's for you the link between disinformation and democracy? Just like the title of your book is yeah. How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. Okay, fighting for truth, that's, I mean, that's a no-brainer because yeah. disinformation is uh, <laughs> surrounded. Yeah. You, you mentioned on bullshit earlier. So it's, right. you, you guys don't deny the truth, but just surrounded with bullshit and people won't believe anything is true anymore. Right. So, but what's the link with democracy? This is a good question because, I, you know, as you know, for years, I'm a philosopher of science, and for years I've been concerned with science denial that we've, you know, been talking about, about flat earth, vaccines, climate change, evolution. And I think that what happened is that we saw that problem grow to where it encompassed more than just science. And I think that disinformers learned from that, that if you can, I, I think that, you know, imagine somebody who is an authoritarian, imagine somebody who, you know, didn't, they, they just wanted political power. They want reality to be a certain way because it helps them. But how do you get people to come around to what they want to think is true? I don't think it's that hard to look at science, what's happened to science over the last 50 or 60 years and say, wow, let's do that. Let's do what the science deniers have done. Because while you and I and you know other folks think that it's ridiculous, it and it is it's in fact been very successful you know the campaign against climate change and against the covid vaccines has been super successful and so why wouldn't some authoritarian politician look at that and say i want to do that too but i'm going to do that about different things i'm going to do that about whether the election was stolen from me i'm going to do that about what's happening with the economy or a crime. You know who I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly, when you start to undermine facts, you under you want to begin to undermine democracy. So it's not, I think that this way that disinformation creates denial uh metastasizes very quickly from being about science to being about more than just science. And that's why I think that democracy is in peril because you, you look at the 
look at the people who are deniers about climate change. What do they want? It's mostly about money. It's mostly about fossil fuel interests. But what do the people want who are denying the truth about the 2020 presidential election in the United States? They want power. Yeah. It's not about money. It's a little bit about money, but it's mostly about power. And so th this is the alarm bell that I'm trying to ring, which is that it's the same playbook. It's the same thing happening now with reality that's been happening for the last 40 or 50 or years or longer with science. But the good news is we know how to fight that. I mean, we haven't won that fight, but we can look at how you push back against an anti-evolutionist or how you push back against an anti-vaxxer and understand that's the same thing that Trump and people like him are doing about the 2020 election. It's what I call in the book strategic denial. It's it's uh, you know it's with a purpose. They're they're not just randomly saying falsehoods. They're saying it with a purpose. That that's by the way where I wanted to draw a distinction. As much as I admire Harry Frankfurt's book on bullshit, I think that people have to understand the technical definition that he gives in his book is that that's somebody who doesn't care about truth, that they just randomly say false things because they're indifferent to truth. A disinformer is not indifferent to truth. They're very concerned with um, attacking the truths that they don't want to be true. Because you have to, you have to know what you want to attack, right? That's, so you have to be right. aware of the science and everything like that. That's and right. then you can say, well, if we change this a little bit and... That's right. It's strategic. Yeah. So so Trump, I mean, Trump knows exactly what he wants people to believe. He wants people mm -hmm. to believe that there's some kind of a democratic conspiracy to steal the election from him because that increases his possibility of getting people to vote for him uh, and, you know, to be on his side in the next election. That's what he wants. In his heart and soul, I believe that Trump is a fascist. I think that he wants to rule through autocracy or authoritarian or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And the root that you often see in history, and Snyder talks about this in On Tyranny, is to attack truth. Yeah. Uh, Snyder says it very eloquently and much shorter than I did. Uh, he says, post-truth is pre-fascism. You know, attacking the idea of not just truths, but the idea of truth. Um, what I call in my book, post-truth, the political subordination of reality. That is a threat to democracy. Yeah, I think that's important to emphasize because the goal is not to make you believe, uh, I don't know, CO2 is not the cause of climate change or something like that. But the, the ultimate goal is to make you believe that there's not there's not really any truth, right? And all uh, science is politicized. And that's right. And that's actually how it also it's, it's an unfair fight because the the one who spreads disinformation doesn't need to uh let's say prove anything or have something positive to say they only need to attack whatever someone else who says yeah that's right that, that's right look at the cigarette companies in the 1950s who wanted yeah. didn't want it to be true that smoking caused lung cancer they didn't have to show that it didn't cause lung cancer they just had to raise doubt where there really was none and they were successful in that 
Um, and that's really what's happening today. I think that people are following that blueprint. And Naomi Oreskes, in, in her book, Merchants of Doubt, called that the uh, the tobacco uh, strategy. And they're using that today in American politics and, and politics around the world. They're, they're using that same strategy of creating doubt where there isn't any. And, and you put your finger on it in exactly the right way. It's not just to get you to doubt some particular thing. It's not just to get you to believe some particular falsehood. It's to get you to give up on the idea of truth altogether. But there's one more aspect of it, though, that I want to make sure people understand. It's to distrust and even to hate the people who are on the other side. That disinformation is the thing that polarizes you, not truth. Disinformation is meant to polarize you around a factual issue so that you see the people on the other side as your enemy. So, uh, you know, which is a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, one of the links I made with Plato's Cave is that once you uh, see kind of the, the mechanics behind it, like let's say like you see the fire and the, and the puppets in front of you, in front of the fire. Um, on the one hand, I, I kind of admire how it works as well, even though it's very destructive, but it's kind of ingenious because you, mm -hmm. so you mentioned the tobacco strategy already. So one, I think one part that's important is uh, historical, uh, how do you say it? Historical awareness, because it's all there. Mm -hmm. You can read the books, you can read, you know, it's, there's nothing new under the sun in that sense. They're using yeah. the strategy because... Yeah. The only reason they're using it, it works and it, it, it's successful. And it's climate, been, yeah. Right. And the climate disinformation, I think, I don't know if you agree with, but so if you look at the tobacco strategy, you can see, well, uh, they weren't successful because now there's tobacco. No, they were extremely successful. It was yeah. until 1998. Yeah, they sold cigarettes for 40, yeah. years, 40 more years and made billions of dollars. And even when they were caught, they paid the $200 billion fine and moved on. I mean, that just shows you how much money there is in tobacco that they paid $200 billion and said, yeah, you know, we'll we'll make it all back. Um, you know, Plato's Cave, perfect, perfect analogy here. Because it's hard enough to know reality just because we're chained looking at the wall, the shadows on the in the cave. That, that's hard enough already. What do you do now when somebody's standing behind and creating shadows where there are none? They're making it even harder, right? So, I mean, think about fraud in science. Science is already hard enough to do. It's already hard enough. I mean, you still can't know reality perfectly even through science you know there's the because of the problem of induction it's you know just you, you can never be sure you can rule a theory out but you can never verify that it's absolutely true you don't know shadows on the wall in the cave absolutely but what what's even worse than that fraud somebody who's deceiving you know, I mean, that's the, and that and I, that I think, by the way, is why fraud is the one real original sin in science, because I think people feel like, damn it, science is hard enough. 
don't be don't, don't be fraudulent about it i mean nobody needs that um and i think that's uh that's what we're recognizing is happening now uh it with science denial and in american politics and really some politics around the world people have discovered just how easy it is to manipulate those shadows mm -hmm. yeah and so one way is to okay if once you start recognizing that once you read the merchants of doubt or watch the documentary and you see how oh, this is has been done before the other part is yeah, what we discussed last time as well, the five strategies of uh, uh, science denial. Yep. Which are also genius. Like, okay, one example. I, I did one post on LinkedIn because uh, sometimes I had these discussions with uh, climate deniers and then I, I found out how to stop conversation because I do it to learn, right? I don't do it to convince mm -hmm. them. I do it mm -hmm. to learn. That's yeah. one part. And the other part is I do it because the, of the people who are uh, reading with me. So mm -hmm. the audience in that sense. Yeah. Um, and um, so one of the one of the conversation stoppers, if I thought, okay, this is enough, I said, okay, can you show me a scientific publication in a peer reviewed journal that, uh, yeah. And then they would reply like, well, there are tons of uh, publications and there's a debate in science about whether CO2 is the cause or not. And I would ask them, just keep on repeating, okay, but can you show me a publication? And they would never be able to send me a publication. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I do one LinkedIn post where I say, well, I have these conversations with climate skeptics and um, uh, they often defend the claim that uh, CO2 is not the main cause of the climate change that we're seeing now uh, or that there's a debate in science. Mm -hmm. uh, please, uh, everybody, send me your peer-reviewed publications. So no YouTube links, uh, no site, uh, websites, no, uh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. And it was just fascinating because I thought, well, I, I'm actually uh, honestly interested in sending those, in, in looking at those publications because there are a few. So they sent like, uh, I think, between 10 and 20 publications in the end. Mm -hmm. uh yeah i mean i still have to look at them but for instance one of them like the author gets confused as million and billion <laughs> so he says okay. there's going to be 10 uh, this he says there's going to be 10 million people on earth and i think okay if this got through the review process but even besides that the most fascinating thing was what they they did a lot of other things instead of sending those publications and it was because I learned your uh, five, uh, you didn't think of them, but you list them in your book, the five strategies of science denial. Yeah. So it was so fascinating to look at, okay, what are they doing instead of uh, sending publications? So one of them was uh, asking me, no, you have to send a publication mm -hmm. to prove without a doubt that climate change is real. Mm -hmm. And that's such a brilliant strategy because I think if I hadn't read that book, I would have fallen for that because it if you hear if you hear it, it makes sense. Can you prove without a doubt that yeah that CO2 is the cause of uh, and, and, climate change? And no, but I can't prove no. without a doubt that <laughs> yeah. the sun is going to come up tomorrow or that uh, water is uh, necessary for human life or that aspirin is safe or you know anything because of the problem of induction they don't want to hear that 
But I think that the, it's a smart strategy for scientists to lean into that, to say there's always scientific uncertainty. Yeah. Pe people often shorthand that by saying you can't prove a negative. But I mean, it's it's important to understand what, what's really at stake there. It's the idea that you can, if you find evidence that the theory is false, then the theory is done. But if you find evidence in support of the theory, it may be true or it may just not be refuted yet. And so the burden of proof is always on the person who you know has the less evidence. I mean, this is what I want to ask the, the science deniers myself and, and, and sometimes do. Why do you prefer? Okay, so you think there's a scientific dispute? You know, yeah. there's there's a. I, I get into this with flat earthers sometimes, and they'll say, you know, well, you know, you you've got your theory and I've got my theory, and you know, there's evidence for both, or you know, maybe they'll say that, or they say that they've got evidence for their theory, and I'll sometimes say, why? How is it rational? Or they say you can't prove me wrong, or I could be right. I could you you know I could be right. Yeah. Well, maybe, but why should I believe the theory that has less evidence? That's not that's not rational. Not rational to believe the theory. Right. Or they say, yeah, but in the past people yeah. they were 100 percent sure they come with Ga yeah. Galileo or Einstein yeah. or something. You like just that. wait. You yeah. just wait. I'm gonna be the next Galileo. I'm gonna yeah. be the one. <laughs> and you know, they and and I think that some of them genuinely believe that. But Galileo had the evidence. Galileo could, you know, when you ask Galileo to provide evidence, he could do it. And and you know, I like your strategy because you're you're saying, okay, this is a matter of evidence. Show me your evidence. And yeah. they can't. So what did they do in a post where I explicitly said no YouTube videos, no links to website? So what did they get? YouTube videos, links to websites, all that stuff. 20 of them. And if you don't read them by midnight uh, and, uh, you know, admit that you're wrong, then, uh, yeah. you know, you're, you're dogmatic and you're not, you're not yeah. open to. Uh, yeah, you're, yeah, you're not open to debate. You know, here, here's I I often get invited to debate. Uh, you know about climate change or flat Earth or something like that, and I and I turn them down. Vaccines. And I want to say to them, why are we going to debate an empirical subject? That's not how it's decided. It's decided on the basis of evidence, not rhetoric. So what are we going to talk about? you know we're gonna we're not gonna we're gonna talk about why we believe it i mean we can and because, because we can especially do that. If, yeah you're not the science i'm not a climate scientist and you're not a climate scientist and we're going to debate yeah. whether climate scientists are uh yeah it just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense but you know it it seems like they feel entitled to their opinion you know being taken seriously the model of science allows those opinions to be taken seriously when they have the evidence they have to be run to ground but for somebody to just kick in the door and say no no stop the works everybody right now and look at what i have when they don't have evidence there's no reason to take it seriously science has to move on yeah
So just to for our listeners to help recognize, so the first one is setting impossible expectations for science. Like science, we know science can never it can it can provide evidence, but it cannot prove uh, that's something. right. Uh, and the second one is rely on fake experts. So right. <laughs> uh, I think the Nobel Prize should come with a warning label that it doesn't make you an expert on climate right. science because Unless apparently you are Nobel Prize, yeah. Yeah. Because that's what you hear, like the Nobel Prize winner or uh, Obama's uh, ex-climate advisor wrote a book. And and then I asked, and then my reply is, okay, but it's not a peer-reviewed publication. Yeah, but he's a climate. Uh, right. So then I asked, okay, but... They shop for their experts who are back up what they believe. Uh, why didn't the Nobel Prize winner write a publication? And yeah. And so the third one, I think, don't think it, that's one of the five ones, but I recognize that one because they... What I noticed, so I said, okay, I have conversations with you uh, and the moment I ask for peer reviewed, so you tell me there's uh, doubt and you have articles, mm -hmm. but I never get them, please send them to me. So one of the things they also were doing in the comments instead of uh, doing that were they wanted to debate with me, they wanted to discuss with mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I even get invitations, like you said, to a debate. Yes. And the reason I refuse that is because i mean i think you can do it in some cases but the whole their whole thing is that they want to construct in this case scientific evidence for climate change as a matter of discussion so if i'm even participating yes. in the discussion i'm legitimizing it oh as... absolutely they'll say look i i got mario v to to debate me i i must have there must be something here no uh, you you can't you don't you don't want to give a liar a platform it's just it's just you don't want to amplify the lie that's that's why i don't i don't debate plus it's not often what i'm asked to debate on they're not scientific questions no the the um so you, you did them in slightly different order there but I, I can go back you know up the list setting impossible expectations for science um uh relying on fake experts the next one is engaging in illogical reasoning. Yeah. You often find science deniers. Um, yeah, one of them was, I would say, okay, there's there's like 97% consensus or the 99% consensus. And they said, so you say there's 97% consensus, but in science, there's always discussion about everything. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the fact that there's 97% consensus means that there's not consensus because you only have consensus right. in a communist camp so, that's so a nice like uh <laughs> illogical reasoning yeah um so engage in illogical reasoning and the the other two are um believe in conspiracy theories i mean there's an obvious one a, a lot of times you know the denial that you you know you hear about science or reality is embedded in belief in a conspiracy theory which by the way allows someone to explain why there's no evidence because that's how good the conspirators are right they they, they they've hidden all the evidence or you know they've covered it up they've bamboozled all these people and um when there is evidence they cherry pick that's the the number one thing they'll only consider the evidence that helps their point of view i saw a wonderful graph on twitter recently that made this point about about 
COVID hospitalizations. It was, uh, I, I can't, I wish I had it to, to share right now, but I'm going to muff it in describing it. But it was something about how, you know, there were more um, COVID deaths in the hospital from people who were vaccinated than who were unvaccinated. Oh, right. Yeah. But then when you look at the larger picture, you realize that's because most people are vaccinated. It's a violation of the base rate. And when you, you know, you, you, you come out the scope and what you find out is that, well, but it's a very, very, very small percentage of the population who are vaccinated who die, you know, of COVID, but it's, a much larger percentage of the population of unvaccinated who die of COVID. I think that's what the the graph was. I I can't I can't remember, but you know the one that I'm that I'm. Yeah, talking. and it's a nice combination of illogical reasoning and cherry picking. And cherry picking, and some, yes, must be some conspiracy theory as well. Must be because uh, yeah. yeah, I've got to print that out and uh, hang it up so I, I remember it so I can can get it right. But it was an it was a nice um, and maybe in the notes for the uh, talk today. You can uh, find that and and put it in because it's uh, that graph is a very nice visual representation of how cherry picked evidence can be misleading. I had a really nice one where so uh, there were some people who sent in peer reviewed papers. This one it was a peer reviewed paper that that proved that climate change was not caused by humans. Uh, except it was on the wrong planet <laughs> so it was about <laughs> mars <laughs> and uh it was oh, about mars man. millions of years ago uh-huh. and i had this whole discussion with him about yeah but where in the paper does it say this is applicable to earth and yeah then came the the impossible expectations for science so so he was showing that climate change could happen even if humans were not on the planet therefore yeah. We shouldn't think that the humans on this planet are the ones who are causing it. Yeah, it's the same. It was climate change there. Of course, there are no people on Mars. So who, why are you so crazy to believe that on Earth it's caused by uh, humans? Yeah, and that doesn't mean that it's not caused by humans on Earth, right? Uh, uh, so no, that's that's a uh, that's a good example. I love that one. Yeah, the the thing is though, it's sometimes so subtle. There was. Um, so, okay, one of the things I do think it's important to talk to people, even if you, yeah, rarely convince them, though there were some exceptions where I don't know if I convinced them, but they mm-hmm. were open to, like, one of the things I often do is tell them, okay, do you, do you know Merchants of Doubt, the documentary, and maybe mm-hmm. can go watch it? Because, you know, you don't know if you convince them, but maybe they're open, Some m- many times be. they're open to, to looking yeah. at it. Yeah. Uh, it, the denial exists on a spectrum and and the other interesting thing is that sometimes i mean they're skeptical and believe in evidence in some cases so maybe you can make some progress you know it's just to me it's always seemed like it's not that they don't have the evidence it's that they're not thinking about the evidence in a scientific way yeah and so i i often think that what what's really needed is an education about how scientists think, what it means to do science. And that that was my earlier book, uh, Scientific Attitude, where I was you know, concerned with the idea of what is it that makes science special, where I leaned very heavily on this idea that 
scientific uncertainty was not something to be afraid of. Scientific uncertainty is something that should be embraced. Yeah. Um, scientists, I think, are sometimes afraid to admit that in public because, you know, when somebody's attacking them about climate change or about something else, it it can feel very threatening not to be able to say, no, this has been proven, proven. But if it hasn't been proven, which it hasn't, then makes you look like a liar, makes you look untrustworthy. So I encourage scientists to, you know, acknowledge uncertainty, say about the vaccines. There's a certain level of uncertainty. We don't know everything, but here's what we do know. And then, you know, to present it that way so that, you know, the, the anti-vaxxer understands that, um, there is overwhelming evidence for you know the safety of the vaccines and against the idea that there are microchips in the vaccines or you know that the MMR vaccine causes autism etc 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 so you know you can provide that the real barrier is that no evidence is going to convince them if they're not thinking about it in a scientific way yeah one of the distinctions that was for me really helpful was uh, also in how we started about polarizing and calling it disinformation. So to say, for instance, if I tell you, uh, oh, actually, this is a piece of disinformation that you just told mm -hmm. me or that you wrote in your comment, you make the distinction between the creators of this information, the amplifiers and the ones who believe it. So that's right. It doesn't mean that I that I then say you actually know that this is this disinformation. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm usually asking as a as a question like, are you aware that what you're telling mm -hmm. is a piece of disinformation? And the thing I think why it works, it's just like marketing, and that's also why I see mm -hmm. really in the Netherlands uh, the climate disinformation people are uh, working overtime and they're very effective. And it's so hard to recognize, but the, one of the ways I can notice it is that uh, you see people on comments uh, that comment on LinkedIn posts or on Twitter, they're all kind of often the same things, but it changes per week. So uh, a while ago, it was really about like, yeah, the climate has always been changing. Uh, how are you so arrogant to think that humans can affect this? Mm. Um and now since a week or two or three and some other people have told me as well that they notice it it's it's quite subtle and it was actually someone here in the in the parliament that was saying that it's like yes of course climate change is happening and it's very bad uh and i'm not saying that co2 isn't uh, a factor but there are other factors as well mm -hmm. And it's and, quite subtle, right? Yeah, but, and and someday they'll get to well, you know, but there's nothing we can do about it because it's too late. Yeah, I mean, they they try to sound reasonable, um, uh, because it's like I said, it's strategic. It's strategic denial. They're you know they they know what the outcome that they want to believe is, and they're looking for a way to, uh, you know, to to push that through. Yeah. 
Yeah, so yeah, maybe just <laughs> have to go over some things that people can do <laughs> before we get too depressed. Okay. Because I mean, just to say, okay, the first thing to, well, I think it's clear, but just to say it, that this is, that we are in a disinformation war. Yes, uh, that that's that's <laughs> important. I mean, let me go back to this idea that you brought up, which is really the backbone. It's really the structure of my book, that there are disinformers, amplifiers and believers those three categories and there are things that you can do and this is my earlier book how to talk to a science denier there are things that you can do to try to convince believers to change their mind but it's hard to do and it's not always effective and one reason i wrote my new book is because I realized that the scale of the problem was too great. And that, you know, if we go one by one debunking false information, it's it, it's not going to be enough. So what I advocate in my book is that the primary pinch point is to crack down on the amplification of disinformation. It's the people who sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly, are sharing the false information, right? Because the, the person who's creating the disinformation is getting something out of it. The person who's sharing it may not be. Maybe they're sharing it because they think it's true or, you know, for, for whatever reason. But that's where most of the damage is done, I think. Because without amplification, disinformation is useless. It doesn't get out to the audience. But once it gets out to the audience through amplification, like what's happening now on Twitter, um, it it can be it can be quite uh, destructive. And the reason for that is cognitive bias. You know, we're we're all wired up to believe certain things. To 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 you know to violate the idea about a base rate to you know to to be convinced by an anecdote rather than uh, the evidence i mean it's just part of how we reason and the disinformers exploit that yeah they're like it's like marketing and consumers right so uh the person who was saying yeah there are other factors that's one of the parties that doesn't want to invest a lot of money in uh, the mm -hmm. energy transition. So it's like if you get delivered by a lobby group, like in, in Holland, you have uh, Clintel, but I think they're worldwide. And yeah, they, they, can, they just have to give you this piece of like, yeah, but did you know that um, there are also other factors like this, this Nobel Prize winner and Obama's ex- uh, uh, the, so this organization even translated unhinged in Dutch, like the, the book, it's like marketing. So then you think, yeah, okay, so then I can, the, the person's generally, either they're just amplifying it or they believe it, but it's something that suits their strategy. And they're not really busy probably with, I want to spread this information or something, but they're just amplifying it because it, it suits their, yeah. their goals. And, and delay is just as effective doubt and delay are just as effective there's you know there's a saying in the united states uh, this is kind of an old-timey thing but but i think you'll you'll recognize the relevance if you don't want to paint the barn argue over the color <laughs> right that's a good one, just yeah. just distract into you know so rather than do something about climate change 
let's argue about whether CO2 is the only factor. Well, even if it's not the only factor, it's an important factor. So can we please do something about it now? Well, well, no, we, we, don't, we need more evidence. You know, we don't know yet. Uh, what about methane? What about, uh, you know, all these other, you know, possible factors? And, you know, what, what is the extent of the damage? And, you know, how do we measure that? How do you trust the people who are doing the measuring? There, It's just, um, it's done on purpose. Um, and, you know, to... You talked earlier about, you know, one way to fight back is to expose what's going on. And I think that's what needs to happen here, right? To make it clear, this is not a scientific debate. The scientific debate is over. This is a public relations debate from people who have something to lose, right? Yeah. That That's why it has continued in the in the way that it has. It hasn't continued on because there's actual doubt about whether climate change is real or what's causing it. It's something else. And I mean, to be able to expose that is very important, right? To be able to show what the interests at stake are and why they would be doing this. I think that's, uh, I, I, you know, I think that's part, that's an important part of fighting back. Mm, uh... I want to ask you two questions. The first is because we have an election coming up in the Netherlands in November, and I think climate disinformation is going to, we're going to find out later, there's going to be investigations and they're going to find out climate disinformation played a huge part in sowing doubt uh, for people. So what can, and, and you're also going to have an election pretty soon. We are, we are. <laughs> So what's what's like the top one or two things that governments should do to kind of immunize the voter against disinformation or help build some immunity at okay. least? Government is not going to do it. No. And the social media companies are not going to save us either. I hope that journalists do more. I've got a good friend, Andy Norman, who's written a book called Mental Immunity, where he talks about how what you can do for yourself to try to immunize yourself from disinformation, from bad ideas, and how you can help other people to do it too. But again, that's that's important, but it's grassroots. It's it's part of the solution. It's not the entire solution. I I'm very uh interested these days in the idea of um exposing the plot making it clear who's behind the lie and why what they get out of lying i'll give you an example everybody has heard that there might be microchips in the covid vaccines you know oh how did that happen well when you say a lie often enough people begin to think that there's something to it Everybody has heard that rumor. Most don't believe it, but some do. But how many people know where it came from? It came from, at least it was gigantically amplified by, Russian intelligence. There was in April 2020, there was an article in a publication called the Oriental Review, which said that any future, now remember this is April 2020, 
any future vaccines developed in the West would have tracking microchips in them, courtesy of Bill Gates, who held patent 666 on that technology. At the bottom of the article, it said share on Facebook, share on Twitter, which thousands of people did. By May 2020, 28% of the American population thought there was something to this. The Oriental Review is run by Russian intelligence. It was a lie. But people don't know that. So, you know, they they will say people will say things like, well, I've heard that there might be something in the COVID vaccines, or you know, I'm I'm a little worried about this and that. And I think that one way to try to get them past that is to point out, do you know where that came from? Do you know where, you know, you heard it from this person who heard it from that person, but do you know where that started? It started in this publication, the Oriental Review. And then maybe you let them read that and they read the story and go, oh yeah, yeah, this is really interesting. I, I No, I didn't read this, but I, I understand. It. And then you say, ah, do you know who runs that? Soviet intelligence. Your Russian intelligence, you know, I mean, to a group of conspiracy theorists, <laughs> that that might be effective. So, you know, I I think that one of the primary things we can do is expose the plot, show why the uh, the liars lie, what their interests are, not that you know, oh, this is a big debate. Um, there's another saying. I mean, follow the money. Where's the money behind climate denial? A lot of that money comes from fossil fuel interests. And to follow the money, the, the newspaper or the news organization, they're actually one of the rare ones that are doing their job as journalists. Yeah. But I wonder why, uh, you know, in, in Dutch, Klintel, which starts, which uh, stands for climate intelligence, you know, one of the, yeah. the tobacco companies also did that, like people yeah. for health in blah, blah, blah. Of course. They're so effective because most of the times when I when I really get in a discussion with uh, like someone who's not just trolling but really climate skeptic, it all leads back to Clintel. But I there's hardly any uh, serious news organization, and I, I oh. cannot do it because I mean they're very how do you say that lit lit they're litigious. prone to litigious. Yeah, yeah, yeah they'll, they'll come after you. Look, there's a there's a a, a writer in the United States, Jane Mayer, who wrote an important book called Dark Money, uh, where she exposes the money, the interests behind, you know, all these denialist plots in science and politics, etc. It sounds like you need somebody like that in your country. Um, but it makes me wonder whether even just reading Jane Mayer might be instructive for, you know, for people in the Netherlands just to be able to say, oh, I see, that's how it works. Because if that's how it works in the United States, I'll bet that's how it works here as well. I mean, it's, and in some ways it's sad because it's not really hard to figure out the people who are making money from the lie, you know, <laughs> uh, why would they believe it? Why would they, you know, be advocating for it? Because they're making money from it. It's just, I mean, it's not, it's not difficult to put two and two together. Yeah. Well, who knows? I, I've been calling myself an existential journalist reporting on existence. See? So maybe. Well, <laughs> you know, and yeah. I mean, your, your challenge too is when you say something like what I just said. Yeah. 
The challenge is that then you've got two problems because you've got to not only show that the claim is false, you've got to show that it's intentionally false. Yeah, that's difficult. That, yeah. That's a that's a, you know an added burden, but I think worth it, right? Because yeah. it's not a mistake, it's a lie. Yeah. So my last question, two-part question. So you wrote this book with a very specific purpose, and I think it came out about two months ago. So I yep. wonder about how the reception has been and whatever you can share about that. And the other part is how do you see your role as a public philosopher in this debate? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, for instance, as a, I mean, yeah. there are a lot of social scientists working in this field as well. So how, what right. do you feel you can add as a public philosopher in yeah. this debate? The reception to the book has been pretty good. I mean, as you said, it's, it's a small, short, cute looking book. And the, the rule is if you're going to have a message that's kind of scary, put it in a, you know, cute little uh, package but look, I did this on purpose for another reason, which is that, I mean, the book is doing well, the book is selling well, it's getting recognition, I'm doing a lot of shows. I want it to actually change things. Yeah. And so, yes, my goal as an author, my publisher's goal as a publisher is to sell the book. I want people to read the book. I want people to read the book and pass it on to a friend when you i tell people when you're done reading this book don't put it on your shelf give it to a friend with the instruction that when they're done they should give it to someone else that's going to sell fewer copies i don't care i want people to read this book i want them to i heard from one guy uh you know i got a fan mail a uh, fan letter from a guy who said that he wanted you know to know should he just leave free copies on the bus <laughs> You know, and I said, yes, please. Yeah. You know, that, that I mean, that's kind of guerrilla marketing, isn't it? But yeah, that would be a very nice thing because I, I don't want the cost of the book to be a barrier. I want people to know about the book. And usually I think people find it empowering. And it's why I'm doing so much media for this book, because I want people to understand the reason I wrote this book is to show that you are not helpless in this fight. And here are 10 things that you can do. You know, there are the most obvious one that you already mentioned is you, you can't win an information war unless you admit that you're in one. You know, understand that this is about disinformation. It's not a mistake. It's about somebody, powerful interests for either money or power, wanting you to believe a falsehood to undermine science, to undermine democracy, to serve their own interests. That's the main thing. And I was inspired by uh, by Snyder's book on tyranny here. I mean, he he did that same sort of thing. Um, so the other thing that occurs to me is that the type of public philosophy that I'm doing in this book is in some ways similar to where philosophy started. You know, you think about Socrates, you think about Plato. They were engaging with the public. They were, I mean, this was the, invention of philosophy but why did they pursue it it was not just to know things it was to make us better human beings it was to live a better life and so i think that in some ways you know for all the people who criticize public philosophy um that that's short-sighted because public philosophy really goes back to the roots of philosophy 
which is to engage with the public, engage with ideas, uh, and make the world a better place through reason. I think that the, the role of public philosophy is to make the world better, to engage the public in what philosophers are thinking about, but also for philosophers to go out into the world and to help clarify things that, you know, are, are out there that, you know, the issues of our day. And so what I'm trying to do is to give, you know, you're right, there are social scientists working on this. I mean, we need as many uh, uh, oars in the water as possible on this big of a problem. I'm trying to provide in this short, you know, overview, kind of the view from 30,000 feet, you know, what, what disinformation is and how you can fight it. Um, and I'm an advocate. I mean, I'm not a scholar in this book. There are footnotes in the book and I'm, you know, I've got a PhD in philosophy and I'm a philosopher. So I'm, I always um, am thinking about what's the evidence? How can I back this up? What if somebody challenges me? So I've always got notes in my books that people, you know, can find my sources. But in the argument in the book, uh, I am an advocate for the idea that we need to fight disinformation and that disinformation is a threat to democracy. I think that this issue is too important to just be a subject of academic debate and, you know, to pretend that we're all disinterested in the outcome. I'm very interested in the outcome. I want disinformation, the plot of disinformation, to be exposed so that democracy in the United States can survive and around the world, because I think it's under threat in other countries too. So, you know, this is a different kind of book than I've written. I've written public philosophy books that are trade books that appeal to the general public before. I've never before written a book that I feel is so urgent that I want people to act on, not just read and understand, but to read it and say, now I know what to do. This is my battle plan. You know, I'm going to write to my member of Congress. I'm going to write to my cable TV company. I'm going to go protest. I'm going to start boycotting the advertisers, you know, to the media outlets that spread lies. You know, and I mean, if enough people do that, I think we've really got a chance here. So that's my, it's a little bit of a different role for somebody who's, you know, trained as a scholar, but um. This is, I think we're going to look back on this as the issue of our age, the problem of disinformation. If, if democracy falls, it will be because of this. And so I, I just felt like I had to write this book. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Mario. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening. You know, a lot of coffee goes into producing this independent educational podcast. If you want to support me with the towering cost of this coffee, you could subscribe to my Patreon for only one euro per month or make a one-time donation. It also helps if you subscribe on your podcast provider and give a rating, because that's how it works in Plato's Cave. Go to livefromplatoscave.com for more information.